Hi, I'm Kayla. And I'm Alicia, Kayla's mom, and you're listening to True Crime Exposed. This is our last full-length episode before I head to CrimeCon this weekend in Las Vegas. We do have one bonus episode coming out this week, so not our last, last episode, but I am very excited to be heading to CrimeCon. I'm going to learn so much stuff. I'm going to hear from incredible people. My mom was supposed to be coming, of course, because this is our podcast together, and we did actually buy the tickets before we started the podcast, so we are just attending But she is staying back for my sister's tumbling competition. If you're a mom, you get it. It is hard to miss out on your kids' things. So I totally understand. My sister is coming with me instead. And I want to know if you are going to be there. So if you will be at CrimeCon, I want to meet ya. I want to make new friends. I want to hang out and talk about true crime. So please message me on any of our social medias or you can email us at truecrimeexposed at gmail.com. Instagram is truecrimexposed. Pod, TikTok is True Crime Exposed Podcast, Twitter is True Crime Exposed minus an E between Crime and Exposed, and Facebook at True Crime Exposed Podcast. So find us there and message me if you are going to be in Las Vegas this weekend for CrimeCon. For our episode today, I chose a case that's local to me. And I thought it was this case that was all tied up in a neat little bow. Sad and devastating, of course, because all cases are. However, I didn't think there was a lot of meat to the case. I I just thought it was pretty simple and to the point. A heartbreaking story. However, I was wrong because as I dove into it, there was so much to uncover that I never knew. So I'm apologizing now because seriously, this is one of the most heinous crimes I have ever seen committed in Idaho. With that, I'm not sure that you're ready for it, but let's get into today's case. So local reporter Nate Eaton with East Idaho News years ago did this interview with Geralee's parents and that is where I got a lot of my information about her because her parents talk about her, of course, in that interview. And I just, it made me realize when I was going through this case, how much I hate in these cases that you can only find one or two articles that go into the background of a victim's life, yet you can find tons of information on the life of a perpetrator. I just don't think it's fair. And we will be diving into the background of this perp in this case to show what led up to this crime. And I think it's important to go into the background for the psychology of it all and whatnot, but I just wish there was more information about the victims we could find. That's like always my biggest challenge, and I don't think it should be that way. I know it's crazy because you get tons of info on like the killers. Yeah. Probably because they're disgusting and people are interested in that, but I mean, really... It's 
these true crime stories, I think you get connected with them because you get like character development and get to know the victims. Yeah. That's how I feel for sure. Because I actually like care about these people that it happened to. But yeah, people dive into the psychology of a killer, which yes, we kind of need to do that. But I always wish we could talk about the victim as much. Yeah, it's just sad how much the murderers get the attention. So we will get into Jerry as much as I can. So she was born on January 9th, 1982 to her parents, Jeffrey Dean Underwood and Joyce Browning Underwood. She was born in Greeley, Colorado, and she would end up having five, five siblings, two brothers, Jamin and Justin, and three sisters, Jennifer, Janice, and Jessica. Geraldine was a premature baby and was born a month before her mom's presumed due date, weighing only four pounds, nine ounces, and staying in the hospital for 10 days. So you know all about that. Oh. One month early isn't too <laughs> They're so cute. I know they're tiny. Yeah. (laughs) So she was only four months old when her family decided to move to Pocatello, Idaho. And that is just about 45 minutes south of where I am at in Idaho Falls, Idaho. And I was listening to this other podcast the other day and they were talking about a case out of Idaho and they were explaining all these things about Southeast Idaho where I'm at. Like how the main jobs are in nuclear or agriculture and all this farming land. And it was funny to me because I realized I already know so much about Idaho. So I never put the land or like area into perspective for people. It made me realize that there's a lot of people listening who probably don't understand Idaho or like a certain city in Idaho and like how big or small it would be. So Pocatello is a fairly small city, although it is the fifth largest city in the state just behind Idaho Falls, which again, we're right next to each other. Pocatello sits close to 55,000 for a population and Idaho Falls sits just above 60,000. So like not huge, but not teeny tiny. I was just going to say, oh, huge towns. (laughs) I know. (laughs) The huge towns, small cities. So her family feels really at home in Pocatello. And Geralee, regardless of being born at that small four pound size, did grow up to be tall and surpassed most of her classmates. And she was so smart. She was super into crafts and writing. And she even won awards for that writing. Wait, is this the story? Do I know this story? I didn't think I recognized it. You might. I feel it, like it's Is one. there a documentary on it? I am not. I'm sure there may be. None just like popped up. I looked on a few places, like a few TV watching apps I have, and nothing just popped up for me. Okay. But so this isn't, I can say it then. <laughs> this isn't the one, the friend's parent. Or the parent's friend. Oh, abducted in plain sight. Oh, yeah. (laughs) That's the one I was thinking of. Okay. They're from Pocatello, too. They are abducted from plain sight. I'm sure if you are super into true crime, then you have heard and watched that craziness. And that is also out of Pocatello, Idaho. (laughs) But no, this is not her. This one is actually... I don't think I know this case. Yeah, it's crazy because I've always heard about it. I think just because I'm here, I've heard about it on and off. And I 
since we started this, I've wanted to cover it. I've thought of her a lot of times, but then as I started to cover it, I had no idea. I don't think people even here have any idea of like the depth of this case. So if you don't know it, you'll be, yeah, you're in Pocatello is also the something. one we talked about on one of our news stories, the funeral home that had all those fetuses. Oh, yeah. <laughs> there was that funeral home there in Pocatello where the guy got arrested first because he had all those fetuses, but then he also had like many bodies. Yes. That were supposed to be donated to the university as cadavers. And something happened where he just had the, all the bodies around decomposing. I not being cremated, not being used as cadavers. It was really weird. <laughs> so Jara Lee, she was a straight A student at Indian Hills Elementary School. And in fifth grade, she ran for vice president of the student council. She won this position and dreamed to run for president the following year. Jara Lee was also an avid reader. Her parents would always send her up to bed telling her to go to sleep. And then they would check on her hours later as they, they themselves were going to sleep. And they would find her awake in her room, still up reading a book. Not only was she smart and determined, she was also a huge help with her family. She was the second oldest, just behind her brother, Jamin. At the time of her death, Jamin was 12 years old. Her sister, Jennifer, was nine years old. Janice was seven years old. Jessica was five, year old, five years old. And her youngest brother, Justin, was two years old. Jerilee didn't mind helping out with her little siblings. She loved them. They were adorable and she had a lot to teach them. Jerilee was really good with being outgoing and including others, which I think is a very important quality for a young girl to have. Jerilee's family were devout members of the LDS Church, which is a church very prevalent here in Idaho and that many people refer to as the Mormon Church. They loved their ward connections that they built up here in Pocatello. And a ward, they talk about it a couple times, so I thought I'd try to explain. Hopefully, I made it make sense, so let me know. A ward is like a group of people you attend church with. There's like different times and different wards go at different times. Usually, your ward members are made up of like close proximity. So most of Jerilee's family, most their neighbors who were of the same faith would be in their ward. Yeah, it's basically like a congregation. Yeah. And we talked about her being determined. So it was no surprise to her family that she wanted to get a little job and make some money. She had seen her older brother, Jamin, working the paper route and she wanted badly to join him. So when she is 11 years old, she gets a job alongside her brother delivering the newspaper for the Idaho State Journal. She was only on her paper route for a few months when the Idaho State Journal gives her a trip to Yellowstone. She won it because she had enrolled the most members in those few months. And her mom, Joyce, says this is because people really liked her. She was fun and she was sweet and she made her customers on that route feel important. She was always getting tips beyond what her parents thought she would when she started out. And they were super proud of her for putting herself out there and being a hard worker at such a young age. Aw, that's cute. <laughs> I didn't realize they had to, like, recruit people. Yeah, I didn't either. But it sounds like she did a lot with this job. So she, I think, 
took out the newspaper, like delivered it. She also collected money for it. Sounds like she en- enrolled new members. So she was doing a lot for a little 11 year old. Yeah. Hard worker. <laughs> I don't yeah. think 11 year olds today would be doing that much, but. No. <laughs> no. So it's on the evening of June 29th, 1993, that Geralee heads out for her regular paper route. She's collecting money for the newspaper and she's going door to door doing this. She loved walking this route during these warm summer months and enjoyed some time outside in the fresh air, but she could have never imagined the evil lurking just down the road from where she grew up. It's around 5.45 p.m. that her mom and dad, Jeff and Joyce, they're out gardening in their yard and they wanted to enjoy the last of the sunshine that day while they waited for Geralee to finish up. But right then, their phone rings and it's a woman who attends the same church as them. She lives about a half mile down the road and she asks them a peculiar question. Is someone helping Geralee on her paper route today? And this question comes as a shock because no, no one was helping Geralee. So why would this neighbor think that? Well, she tells him that she saw Geralee get into a car with someone and this panic runs through her parents when they hear it. So they jump into their car immediately and they leave their home, which is on Kirkwood Place Road, and they drive a half mile down to the home of this woman who made the call. When they arrive, the situation seems even more dire because not only did this woman see Geralee get into a car with someone, she saw a man force Geralee into this car before driving off with her. Oh my goodness. Yeah. She didn't run out there. (laughs) I know. I'm like, did you like, did you let him know? I mean, maybe he didn't care and he probably would have taken her anyway because clearly he's abducting a little girl in like broad daylight. Mm -hmm. But I'm not sure if the neighbor tried to stop it or if she was just confused and that's why she calls because she's like wait did I just see what I really think I saw so she points Geralee's parents to where this incident took place and it's on the corner of Carter Street and Main Street and immediately something is off like they can feel it in their gut so Jeff quickly calls police to report his daughter missing actually to report her abducted specifically and do they believe her this time? Or him? Yes. They definitely believe him right away with the witness saying she literally saw a dude force a little girl into a car. Okay, so good. they're like on it right away. I know. Thankfully. Mm-hmm. Nothing's more annoying than when they're not. <laughs> How many police departments would probably be like, oh, she was probably meeting that guy. She probably, pl- that 11 year old girl probably planned to meet that guy. <laughs> For real. Route. Like, that's how it always goes. So, no, thankfully, the Pocatello police were on it, and they arrive promptly, and then searches are underway. But the sun sets, and there is no sign of 11-year-old Geralee. Her parents, they go through that first agonizing night without her, I'm sure unable to sleep among their thoughts of where she could be, of what could have happened. I mean, I you mean, would be freaking out, because you he, knew a man took her. Literally, it what I was going to say next. Like, they know someone abducted her. They know someone forced her into a car. So how would you not be freaking out? I just out? don't. Yeah. I mean, I, I think yeah. I would be driving around the streets. 
I could oh, yeah. sit at home. Yeah, that like their worry was so intense. It was like debilitating. I I would be going crazy. Oh yeah. Now the the next day they continue the searches, but there's still no luck and they just can't trace down where she might be. Police agencies all across Idaho had set up traffic blocks so that any cars passing through would have to stop at these checkpoints. They had hoped this method would work in stopping Jerilee's abductor before something tragic happened, but unfortunately, there's no luck in this. Was there a description of the car? There is, which I don't know it off the top of my head, but I do have it in here somewhere. (laughs) Yeah, but the lady saw it. Yes, the lady did see the car. Okay. And so, you know, they're looking for it. They're trying to stop people and just there's no luck. So... The day after she's abducted, as those searches come to a close yet again for a second night, her family gathers with other local church members at their LDS church for what they called a stake fast. So a stake is more broad community members of this church where their ward is more like their neighbors. So I don't know if that makes sense, but the stake and the wards, they all go to the same church building, but the wards, they go at different times and then. Everyone who goes that building is the stake, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or even more wards may not go uh, yeah. to oh, that yeah. specific church. So it's, it's just like a multiple. larger area. Mm-hmm. The congregations would get so big that they had to split them out into wards. And then the next step would be a stake. Okay. So yeah, they gather for this, for this stake fast, and different wards com- and community members from all around Pocatello come, and they were fasting, meaning they're not eating for a specific amount of time, like in hopes of a blessing. Basically, this is like a pre or plea or a prayer. Let's sacrifice. Yeah. Hoping to find, like hoping that it will help in their search for Geralee. And Jeff Underwood says, quote, we had a steak fast for her and everybody in the steak center said a prayer. There was probably over 1000 people there from all walks of life, end quote. And it's after this prayer that the sense of peace comes over Joyce. In this moment, she feels that her daughter is actually okay. There's a calmness in her that everything will be all right. Later on, she unfortunately realizes that this wasn't a sense of peace that her daughter was okay, but more of a sense that her daughter was okay in heaven for her. She, at this time that she feels this, she later on finds out that Geralee is in fact dead and was killed around this time. So she now... In that moment, she thought it would mean that Geralee would come home safely. Afterwards, she realizes that peace just meant that she was no longer suffering here on Earth. Mm. I know. So sad. I can't even wrap my mind around it. So the days they pass and the searches continue and they put up a cash reward to and they announce this in the newspaper. The paper reads that a cash reward for information leading to the safe return of Geralee Underwood has been put up and that you can remain anonymous with your information. In this paper, they describe the car Geralee was forced into. So this is the guy's car. It was a light cream and white colored car. 
And then next, the newspaper reads that the kidnapper was probably clean shaven in his 30s and about five foot seven inches tall. And he was seen wearing a plaid skirt and a plaid skirt, a plaid shirt Mm -hmm. and a dark cap. And they ask anyone with information to call the Pocatello Police Department, also asking that people keep their eye out for a journal paper route delivery bag or like a collection bag. So when Geralee was taken by this predator, she was wearing a Utah Jazz t-shirt, a jazz cap, and shorts with a purple band around her legs. And they describe her as having auburn hair. So almost a week goes by since Geralee was abducted with still no sign of her. And her story starts to be covered by the national media. Everyone is wondering how a girl is taken off of the street in plain sight. Police are immediately on the case. There are endless searches for her, but they still can't find her. But as her disappearance hits one week, there is an announcement from the Pocatello police there has been a break in the case. This is announced just before the arrest of 45-year-old James Edward Wood. And that name, it's not familiar. Joyce and Jeff have never heard of this man. So, who is he? James Edward Wood was actually born as James Goodwin, and he was born in Pensacola, Florida, on December 9th, 1947. At the time he was born, his dad, who is named Sherman, was in prison there in Florida in Fort Leavenworth. His dad was an alcoholic who didn't really treat his mom, Hazel Johnson, right anyway. So when she gave birth to her second son, while Sherman is behind bars, she decides this is her time to break free. She then moves to Idaho, where she is raising her two sons as a single mom. Despite them not having a father figure, it seems she provided a pretty good life for them. According to all accounts, James had a regular childhood until about 1955. It was that year when James was eight years old that he actually witnessed his mother die in a tragic potato warehouse fire in Rupert, Idaho. During this fire, it seems that Hazel was a hero as she went in to save two other potato workers and ended up perishing in the fire herself. Now, this is obviously sad to hear about an eight-year-old losing their mom, let alone witnessing it. And we can definitely feel bad for eight-year-old James, but I am going to put it in here that while it is sad, what he does through his life that we're going to learn is disgusting. So I feel bad That's for not him. A reason. Yeah, I feel bad for him at this moment when he's eight, but from here on, like I hate him. So, <laughs> you know, that is sad, it's traumatic, whatnot. Now, James, he claims that after this fire, he was panicking. No surprise, of course, he's eight years old and he's watching his mom pass away. It would be very traumatic, but he says in that panic that he runs up to a woman there at the scene and wraps his arms around her and he starts crying into her waist. But instead of consoling him, she pushes him away from her and he insists that it is that moment he formed a hatred for women, claiming the hatred was extremely aggravated when a woman resembled the woman who pushed him away from her. Now, I don't know if this is true like the woman part his mom dying in a fire is true 
but I just don't believe anything that comes out of James' mouth. And I feel like he's kind of trying to blame all his future actions back on this one moment and this one woman. And I just like don't agree with that because he made his choices. He knew what was right and wrong. And he said it was very aggravated when a woman resembles the woman who pushed him away. Yet he abducts an 11 year old girl and treated her very horribly. And there's no way she resembled this woman no so to me an excuse yeah that's what i was gonna say sounds like an excuse so with his mom passing away and his dad being in prison james is then adopted by his aunt and uncle who live in idaho falls and this is when his name is changed from james goodwin to james edward wood James claims that his aunt and uncle abused him both mentally and physically, but like I said, he is an actual piece of garbage, so I don't know whether that's true or not. He uses this claim of abuse as the reason that he starts to lash out as he grows older. Now, if he was abused as a child again, sad for child him, I can see the lashing out even tying to the traumatic death of his mom. I just don't know how much of what he actually claims that we can trust. So because of that lashing out, he says that his aunt and uncle sent him to a youth training center in St. Anthony. Well, this is a juvenile detention center over in St. Anthony. And I don't think parents can just choose to send their children to a juvenile detention center. Correct me if I'm wrong. but sometimes that would be nice. It would be like, (laughs) hey... My kid's actually being really bad. <laughs> can you come I get can't him? control this. <laughs> yes. So I don't think people can just do that. And James was. So I did read that he was at one point receiving counseling from this center in St. Anthony on multiple occasions, three times to be exact. So maybe those counseling sessions were more voluntary, but ultimately he's literally sent there. His aunt and uncle had started him in that counseling because he had been having violent sexual fantasies since his mother passed away. They started at age nine and now he's 14 years old when they decide they need to get him into these counseling sessions. And then it's that same year in 1941 when he's 41. It's that same year in 1961 when he's 14 still that he steals a car and he's caught setting fire to dumpsters. Arson, we know at a young age, can always be a negative sign for something brewing, like when they're setting fire to things for destruction. I'm still back on his (laughs) violent sexual fantasies. Did he tell the, his parents this? or He must have. It must have been like made aware to them, to you know, his adopted parents as aunt and uncle. Mm. So I wonder if they had kids or girls or... Whatnot. Yeah, I wonder. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know because I didn't read much about their family particularly, but... Yeah, but it's like, yeah, well, did it, the, a therapist let him know that they, he was having these things I doubt he would at 14 but well it started when he was age nine and then he didn't get they didn't start him in counseling sessions till he was 14 
So maybe at age nine, he did say some stuff because I don't even think you can wrap your mind around all of that when you're nine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, so he might have said some things and then they maybe just watched as it progressed and then decided he definitely needed counseling. He probably needed it anyways from his mother's dad. Oh, for sure. After being caught for the arson and stealing that car, he does become a ward of the state and then permanently is moved to the juvenile detention center. And he hated that place. He tried to escape multiple times, as many as eight times, but he was always caught and brought back. Through all of his attempted escapes, he actually didn't get out of the center except for one time. And that was when he used a knife to actually threaten one of the guard's lives. And the guard was like, no, thank you. I want to stay alive. Go ahead. You can leave. Don't kill me. I wonder what his dad was in prison for. I know. Violence. I'm not sure. It didn't really say. But actually, his dad would soon help him get out of this place that he despised. Because when he is 16 years old in 1963, his dad Sherman is released from prison and he decides he can now take on the responsibility of his son. And he offers James to come live with him. James is allowed by the center to go be with his dad and he takes the first bus he can from Idaho to Shrevenport, Louisiana. He's here for just a couple of years, but when he turns 18, he is ready to move on with his life and he finds a flight school in Missouri that he wants to attend. So he moves there around 1966. It's that same year, he's 19 years old, that he kills a colt, which is a baby horse, and this colt was tied to a tree as a Christmas gift. Oh, it was his Christmas gift? No. It was somebody's Christmas gift. Yeah, it was someone else's Christmas gift outside, all tied up, ready for the person to come receive their gift. And he kills it. Mm, So he clearly has some problems. Mentally disturbed. Yeah. And when he's 20 years old, in 1967, he marries his first wife, Angie Bell, and they have a child together. But this marriage doesn't last long because shortly after saying their wedding vows, James starts raping women across Missouri and Illinois. It's only one year after this marriage that James is arrested in Bossier, Louisiana. They had moved from Missouri to Louisiana in 1967 to live with James's older brother. And it's during that time that he breaks into an apartment of two young women. He is yielding a knife and he uses it to attack both of these women, stabbing each of them and attempting to rape one of them. Thankfully, these strong and bad A women were able to get help, both surviving the attack and leading police to arrest James Edward Wood on charges of aggravated battery. Which honestly, I don't love that charge for stabbing and attempting to rape people after you break into their apartment. It feels more like attempted murder charge to me, but I'm not a prosecutor or a police person, so, you know, I really don't know. (laughs) Well, his wife is obviously mortified at finding out that he did this. So Angie, she divorces him during this time that he is in prison. And while he's sitting in jail, awaiting to see what punishment 
these charges will bring him. He's in the Bossier Parish Jail when he steals one of his cellmate's blankets because he just enjoys being a douche. And this cellmate wasn't going to put up with James's rude behavior. So what does he do? Well, he fills a cup up with lighter fluid and he sets it on fire. But before throwing it onto James, who suffers severe burns because of this. And honestly, I think you'll be with me as we get through this when I say I am 1000% happy that this happened to James. Like, I'm not condoning violence, but I just do not feel bad for him. He deserved those burns. (laughs) I mean, even at this point in his life, he just stabbed two women trying to rape them. Yep. Karma. Like, I already don't feel bad for him. And as we go through, I feel, yeah, I feel that even stronger. Eventually, James, he is convicted of those aggravated battery charges and he's sentenced to 10 years at Louisiana State Penitentiary. But of course, as the story always goes, he was paroled on good behavior on August 18th, 1971. This is only four years after the incident, so he didn't serve anywhere close to the 10 years he received. They never do. Never. And once he's paroled, he decides to start working as a long-haul truck driver. I want to say, truck drivers, you guys are not scary people. I'm sure truck drivers get that stereotype a lot, but what is scary is a monster human having the job of a truck driver because it gives them access to areas all across the country. Mm -hmm. That's what's scary. Truck drivers themselves, not scary. Bad people working as truck drivers, scary. Scary, (laughs) yes. So in 1974... James and Angie, they actually get back together, which I'm like, I know I was, I was so happy Angie divorced him and like got this dude out of her life. I don't get it. I don't want to like blame her or say it's weird. I do think it's weird, (laughs) but maybe, I mean, they have a kid together, so that's always hard. And I'm sure he was super manipulating and yeah. He just, but still, I know he stabbed. She knows what he he stabbed two women. I know. I didn't love that. I did not love that. How long does it last this time? Not as long because he cannot stay out of trouble. Mm -hmm. He cannot stop being violent. So during this time, regardless of the fact that he did just do a four-year stint in prison, he decides to commit many robberies with his brother across the state of Texas, Louisiana, and Arkansas. And this all happens during the late 1970s. And it's in 1977 that he is caught and arrested after robbing a pizzeria in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. However, he doesn't really get in much trouble for this. He is released on bail and serves no jail time. He now wants to move to the northern part of Louisiana where he gets a job as a truck driver again, this time working for an oil company located in Bossier City, Louisiana. So it's closer to 1980 now when he is again arrested for raping a woman in Lincoln Parish, Louisiana. 
So James is literally all over the country, all over Louisiana, causing havoc and pain to so many victims, let alone the many victims we don't even know about because he admits himself he started raping women after his first marriage, and those rapes were done across Missouri and Illinois. His wife, Angie, now files for divorce from him for a second and final time after finding out about this arrest in yet another violent crime. And I can't imagine finding out the truth about a man you thought you loved. I mean, I couldn't imagine finding out about it the first time, let alone the second time. And Mm. yeah, it's just scary to think that some people are out there actually going to sleep next to these evil people. I know. It'd be so creepy if finding out, out later on. Yeah. Yes. And that happens to a lot of people. I'm I mean my relationship must be weird because I mean I don't think it's weird. This is how I think everyone sh- should be, but I mean I know where my husband is. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I do too. Like h- how do people murderers go out and get away with that? Probably the same way cheaters go out and get away with cheating, I guess. <laughs> I mean, and again, he's a truck driver. Oh, so, yeah, his job. I mean, she, she would literally have no yeah, idea. Yeah, she's never going to know where he's at. Ugh. Yeah. And he's just going around doing his thing, using his ch- truck driving job as front. his reason. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I, I always think like, oh, I would have track my iPhone or whatever, but honestly, I don't have it, so... <laughs> I know it's easy to say like what you we think would do. you would do yes but like I don't even think I mean it's hard to wrap your mind around any situation that's sad let alone something like this like I can't even imagine what would go through my mind in this I mean I would again I'm saying it what I think I would do I would definitely leave him <laughs> But, I mean, she does leave him. She leaves him. It is the second and final straw. They actually, I don't remember if I already said this, but they did have a second kid. So now she has two kids with him. But, you know, this is the second time he's going to prison for a violent crime against a woman. So, thankfully, she cuts ties at this point. I know. She has to realize he's mentally disturbed. I always wonder, do people that have kids like worry if they're married to someone who's mentally disturbed if their kids will be i know that's kind of like the um the argument of nature versus nurture like can it be passed on genetically or is it nurture didn't we come to the conclusion it's both yes (laughs) but i don't know if it can be passed on genetically or not i don't think anyone i mean mental illness i would think it yeah it could be Mental illness definitely could be passed on. Um, and they most I, of them have it. Yeah. Most I killers mean, have some sort of mental illness. Well, I feel like in order to kill someone, something has to be wrong with you, even though you're normal, like quote unquote normal. Like even if you seem normal, even if they say you're just like a normal person, like something's wrong with you. <laughs> I mean, you're evil, but like something's wrong with you. I have a... <laughs> Well, I haven't really heard anyone say they're normal. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just talking about the people that say like, oh, like they're, you know, they're not insane. It's like, well, they are insane, but they just know, you know. (laughs) Right? (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Uh, 
Well, James obviously is just causing a ton of destruction, and he is convicted in this case and sentenced to time in Angola State Penitentiary. And he gets out on November 6, 1986, when he is released on, you guessed it, good behavior. This is the second time, I know, the second time he's been released on good behavior. Can we not see that he's clearly faking it till he makes it in prison to be released on good behavior so that he can then go out and hurt more women? Do they not look at this? Do they not look at their prior charges? I, I, I do not think we were good about this back then. We're I don't still know if not. we're good about it now. I know. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like, like they just try to not? get him out of there. I know. And I think rape, I think rapists are more dangerous than I guess a lot of people would like to realize. Like, I mean, that escalates into what he goes on to do. Like, that's a very bad sign in somebody. And after he is released on good behavior, he moves back to Shrevenport, Louisiana in 1987. And while he is here, he gets in a relationship with a woman named Yvonne, and they have a son together in 1989. The couple soon moves to Grand Cane, Louisiana, but James doesn't last long here either because a 14-year-old girl related to Yvonne files a complaint to the police about James, telling him that he raped her at the photo lab he worked for. At this point, James decides to flee the state, and he goes back to Idaho, where he spent much of his childhood and where he did have family. And it's a good place. Yeah, to flee. To be a criminal. Oh, why? (laughs) Is it a good place to be a criminal? I feel like it is. I feel like nobody ever gets punished that much. Well, we have the death penalty still. I might just be biased. (laughs) Yeah, I am curious. I mean, yeah, there's um, that trial for that person we know coming up on Tuesday. Mm -hmm. And it's a child pornography charge. And yeah, I am actually curious to see if he does get in trouble or not, because you will be right if he doesn't get in trouble. If he doesn't get in trouble, you will see me being raging all over social media. We should make a bet on it. (laughs) (laughs) That's how confident I am. Oh, it will make me mad. It'll make me mad. And yeah, yeah, I, I definitely don't think our justice system here is perfect. That's for sure. Yeah. So it's during James's travels to Idaho that he stops in the suburbs of St. Louis, Missouri, and kidnaps 18-year-old Jamie Massingill. She was abducted by James one year before he abducts Geralee Underwood. Once James abducts Jamie, he takes her to a wooded area there in Missouri where he rapes her before shooting her in the head. Oh my gosh. I know. And this is all after he gets out of prison twice. He's out of prison twice. He got in trouble for the robberies. Didn't yeah, didn't go to jail for that. He like he's been super violent over and over. So after he shoots her, he just walks off and he continues his travels to Idaho, leaving Jamie there in the woods. But what he didn't know is that Jamie was a fighter and she did not die. She was actually found in the woods and brought to the hospital where she was in a coma for three days. Oh my gosh. Crazy. 
So she obviously had severe damage and trauma, but she was alive. She survived. The bullet did damage the left side of her brain, which caused her to be paralyzed on the right side of her body. So she can walk, but she does have to use the aid of braces and she's unable to use her right hand. She also has trouble with her long-term memory and sometimes she struggles to put her thoughts into words. Quote, the whole time I was in the hospital, I didn't know the man's name who had done this to me, but I had faith they would find him. I would tell other victims of crime to do what they feel is right. Don't let anyone tell you what to do. End quote. And I feel sure that James committed other crimes through his travels because he's clearly very depraved and one of the worst people I have ever read about. It's on November 1st, 1992 that James does actually make it back to Idaho and he goes to his cousin's house. This cousin is, is Dave Haggard, who lives in Chubbuck, Idaho. Chubbuck and Pocatello are like one in the same, literally right next to each other. I can't even tell you where one ends and one begins. So basically, he is here now in Pocatello, Idaho at his cousin's home. And this cousin is the one who lived just down the road from Lee's family. And James asks him if he could live there for a bit. Dave agrees. He doesn't want James there long, but he says he does have a place to stay until he gets back on his feet. And this brings us around full circle to how James ended up in the position to abduct Geralee Underwood from her paper route. We know Geralee was going door to door, collecting payments for the newspaper. Well, she knocks on Dave Haggard's door. And Dave is eating dinner with his cousin, James Edward Wood. And Dave writes up a check to give to Geralee. She collects it, and then she's off to the next home. And then it's only a few minutes that pass by before James stands up from the dim dinner table and says, you know what, I'm going to go to the store and buy some alcohol. I'll be back in a bit. He walks out of Dave's home, and he gets into his car with evil intent to find Geralee on that route. So he's driving down the road and he spots her, slowing his car down and pulling up next to her, parking it on the corner of Carter Street and Main Street. Then he hops out of his car and he tells Geralee there was a mistake with the check his cousin had given her. That check was no good. She needed to, All she needed to do was to get into her bag and give the check back to him and then he would exchange it for cash. So she looks down at her collecting bag and she starts rummaging through it, trying to find that specific check. And while she is distracted, James grabs her and pushes her into his car. This is the interaction that neighbor witnessed. Mm. That is disgusting. I know. Like, How are there people like that in the world? Yeah. Like why an 11 year old? And he's sitting there having dinner with his family and in like, Two seconds of this little child being at your door, you make this decision to do this horrific thing. I don't Friggin get it. Sicko. Yeah, he's a sicko, and it it honestly gets so much worse. No. Yeah, it really. I does. don't want to hear worse. I know. It's like this is not. I mean, none of it is ever good, but this is not. This is not good. 
<laughs> so I'll get off now. <laughs> <laughs> I do have a trigger warning here in a bit for people that don't want to hear the worst part, uh, but we're not quite there yet. But I will give you a warning to skip 15 seconds or so. You, however, are on here with me, so you cannot. <laughs> I don't like little kid stories. You know, I know that. I know. It's this. Quit doing them. I didn't expect this. I went into this <laughs> thinking it was a pretty, like, tied up box, like, little, like, I went into it thinking it was a pretty, like, clear cut. I knew what was going on in this case. And then it was like, oh, I did you not know. I like, I didn't expect this out of it. So I'm sorry. I like the dateline, like, the husband, the wife cheated on the husband, and the husband went and killed her lover. Oh. <laughs> like the I don't like cri- hearing like, little kids. You stuff. like a crime of passion, <laughs> yes. not an evil. Yes, yes, definitely, yeah. because they're easier to hear about. Still, so sad <laughs> and devastating, but yeah, no, this one's hard. So as they drive off, James takes Geraldine south to Preston, Idaho. It's not like he really has anywhere to go, right? Like, he's staying at his cousin's home. So, I'm assuming he's just trying to get far away from the scene of the abduction. James claims that while they drove around, Geralee asks him why he took her. She tries to talk to him about her Mormon faith, and she tries to tell him about her clogging classes she takes. Smartly, she's probably trying to appeal to any compassion he may have had within him, but he didn't have any. You took clogging, didn't you? I did. I went to Japan, Tokyo, I was Japan. Say, traveled all the way. Yeah. To Tokyo. That's cool. Do you even remember it? Mm-hmm. A little bit. You do? Yeah. Because how old I wish you? it was still popular. I know. That's it's not quite fun. as much. But it, it it's still a little bit popular in Idaho, I think. Hmm. Maybe I should try to find a class not for me for my kids (laughs) anyway through their travels james is clearly able to avoid all police checkpoints because we know those checkpoints were not able to aid in finding geralee safely i wonder if they did the checkpoints on like i-15 and preston you're you don't really well i guess you would go some way on i-15 but then you get off oh you do yeah you get off like Right before you go up the Malad Pass. Mm, So I could see him getting south really quickly. And Mm -hmm. then before they even set up the checkpoints, realizing it's such a dire situation, Mm -hmm. he's off on a random road. Yeah. And it's not super close, Preston. No. It's like an hour, maybe an hour and a half from Pocatello. Right. So James, he drives Geraldine around holding her captive for over a day. During this time, he sexually assaults her, and he didn't stay down in Preston, Idaho this whole time. Again, they're driving around. Like I said, he really had nowhere to go. So they do make it back north towards Pocatello, and eventually pass Pocatello and go into Idaho Falls. It's about 50 miles north of Pocatello that James says he had to pull to the side of the road for Geraldine to go to the bathroom. He stops in an area along the Snake River. And while Geralee walks behind a bush to go to the restroom, while she walks to a private area behind a bush, James follows her using a 22 caliber pistol to shoot her in the head, ending her young life. 
Now that is truly heartbreaking, but this assault of Geralee does not end here. And this is where I'm going to throw in a big trigger warning, letting you all know if you want to skip the next 30 seconds, you totally can because this is really bad. Can I just go la 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 la? <laughs> just plug your ears. <laughs> so... According to the findings of the district court, which I found on caselaw.finelaw.com, James left Jerilee's body there behind the bush, and he would return to this area where he murdered her and undress her body so that he could continually sexually assault her. After all of this, he mutilates Jerilee's body. He severs her arms, her legs, and her head from her torso, and he removes her sex organs. After dismembering her, he throws each of her body parts into the Snake River, and he also throws her clothing into the river as well. So when I said earlier that this guy is beyond my comprehension, this is why. And just everything else that ties into it, it still doesn't even end here. There's more to discover that he's connected to, and he is just like actual evil walking around in human form. So, yeah, I'm like in shock right now. That is so disgusting. I know. And I did I not. I can't even fathom how somebody can do that. No, I did not even know this about the case. I've read articles here and there, right? Like I talked about in the beginning, Nate Eaton with East Idaho News, who I'm about to go meet at Crime Con because he's doing a thing on the tables. <laughs> Does he know he's meeting you? <laughs> I commented it, but he probably didn't see it yet. <laughs> but they have a meet and greet, so I'm going to it. Anyway, he covered this case, of, you know, back in 2016 when he interviewed and that's probably where most people here have read about this case. And I think he tries really hard not to add in the gruesome details into his articles. So I never right. had any idea that this is what happened. Like this was in the court filing. So you found this info just online? Yes, but in like court documents. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was information that I found in an appeal document on James's case. So, mm. yeah, I had no idea that this was like this when I started into it. So, sorry that I mean, I would want to kill that guy if I oh. was the mother. Absolutely. I'd want to go cut off his body parts. Yeah. And you should be allowed to. We should allow family members to hurt the people that do these <laughs> things. I just think they should. Just one hour. Just if you know without a doubt that this person is who did it, can we not implement some sort of family gets to do what they want? <laughs> oh, I yeah. do have to say, though, for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, I do love their beliefs of like afterlife and kind of the stuff that they believe in. Yeah. And they, Jeff Underwood does say that that was a huge part that helped him and his wife through their grief. Mm -hmm. I mean, cause this is, I mean, how do you get through that? Yeah. I don't know if I could. And so they, they did really fall back on the beliefs of on their the LDS church. Yeah. 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 They did. Without believing that there is some kind of afterlife, and that her body will be whole again like how would you even get through it there's i don't know how so 
I honestly couldn't really find anything that defined what tip led them to him because remember in the beginning, law enforcement announced that there's been a break in the case. There was a tip. I feel was it the cousin. I was just going to say that. I feel that the cousin probably had something to do with it, right? Because clearly right after this girl is abducted, James is gone from the home and then doesn't return. Yeah. So I'm sure- and I'm sure they knew the color of his car. Yeah. And he knew that Jerry Lee, his neighbor, was... Had just been there. Just at his door, yes, before she goes missing. And who knows if they even knew or not of James and his troubled past. I'm sure they know of his troubled past as a teenager, at least. Mm-hmm. Let alone all the stuff he did as an adult. I'm not sure, but yeah. So I would like to assume, or I do just assume, that it was his c- cousin Dave Haggard or... You know, someone in that home that was able to bring that tip forward. And he is arrested. James Edward Wood is arrested on July 6, 1993. And he's taken into police interrogation with police detective Scott Shaw. Is he arrested uh, in Idaho Falls? Pocatello? In Pocatello. Yes, by the Pocatello police. Did he go so, back? I don't know. So there's... There's like all this info on him and then there's not specific information surrounding like how he was arrested. So, okay. I know he was, you know, apprehended on the 6th by Scott Shaw and then he's brought in. He I must mean, have been back in Pocatello like at his cousin's house. His cousin was probably like, hey guys, <laughs> he's back and I really don't want him here. So please come get him because I'm pretty sure he's evil. Like. I mean, it's very obvious to the cousin. Like, this was not something he could hide. Mm -hmm. I don't know how he thought he even could. And Scott actually was very, you know, affected by this case. And he helps write a book titled Eyes of the Beast, the true story of serial killer James Wood. And this was written by Terry Adams, Mary Brooks Mueller, and Detective Scott Shaw. So that was just a little side note on that book if you want to learn more. Um, I did read that they they put this book in a very straightforward way because they didn't want to add any... Like, they weren't trying to make it some sensational story. They really just wanted to talk about James, where he came from what could have led him to doing this and like that. So it sounds like a pretty respectful book. Mm -hmm. James, when he is apprehended, he is forthcoming. He doesn't resist arrest and he confesses pretty immediately. He says, yes, he did abduct 11-year-old Jara Lee and he did murder her, but that's not all he confesses to. He starts confessing to the rape of other local girls there in Pocatello And then he goes on to admit to other robberies before he confesses to that attempted murder of Jamie, as well as another murder. He thought. Yes. Yeah. Well, there is another murder actually still that we don't know about yet. Oh. In my telling of this. Yes. So he he does admit to the attempted murder of Jamie, which I don't know if he knew at this point that she had lived. I don't know how news got around back then if it got around as quickly but he probably admitted to the murder and then later found out that she had survived Mm -hmm. but he's basically he's confessing to all of this stuff 
and he is officially arraigned on July 7th, the next day, 1993. James is appointed a public defender named Monty Whittier as his lead counsel, and a couple months after his arrest on August 9, 1993, his lawyer Monty files this motion where he wants to limit visitation with the media because he doesn't want them to contact James anymore. He says that James keeps making statements to members of the press that were detrimental to his defense. This motion was actually granted, and the media was only allowed to visit with James following the approval from his lawyer. But James, he had a phone in his cell, and the sheriff refuses to move that phone. So James would just call the media himself. He wanted to talk about himself. He wanted to talk about his crimes. He wanted the attention. He sucks. Mm. So it's at this time that Monty Whittier drafts this huge contract. It's three pages long, and he makes James sign that Monty, his lawyer, will have the rights to a book about James and have the rights to any movie rights that were to come. Now, if his lawyer is That's keeping weird. the media... Yeah. If his lawyer is keeping the media away from him because he literally wants the rights to the story, then that's garbage and I think totally illegal. However, Monty later testifies that this contract was a ruse to and like it was fake only intended to get James to stop talking to the media because he was screwing his own defense. Who cares? Yeah. (laughs) It's like, let him literally who cares about him initially james pleads not guilty to the crimes he is charged with he had been charged with first degree murder a first degree kidnapping two counts of rape and countless other charges however in september of 1993 james decides to go against the wishes of his defense lawyers and he pleads guilty So all of the extra charges get dropped without prejudice. And he's just left with the first degree murder, the first degree kidnapping, and two counts of rape. Through all of this, the Bannock County prosecutors want to seek the death penalty. And regardless of James pleading guilty, they were not going to take this off the table. Because this is one of the most heinous crimes ever seen in Idaho. It's during his sentencing hearing that Jamie Massingill, the girl who was shot in the head in Missouri by James, she travels to Idaho from Missouri with her parents so she can testify against the man who 13 months earlier left her for dead. Jamie wanted to face him. She wanted him to see how strong she was. And I thought that was really cool that she came out because he was already, yeah, he was already pleading guilty, but she definitely wanted him to be sentenced probably to death because Mm -hmm. he tried to kill her. So she came out to help in that. Good. Yeah. And it's on January 14th, 1994, that the district court sentences James Edward Wood to death for the murder of Gerald Lee. At the same time, they impose consecutive terms of fixed life in each of the kidnapping and rape charges that James pled guilty to. One of these rape charges was in connection to a Pocatello girl, Beth, that had been abducted and raped by James outside of a pizza hut there in Pocatello just mere months earlier. After this sexual assault, James points a gun at Beth's head and pulls the trigger. 
But when it misfires, he tells her, this is your lucky day. And then he lets her go free. So, yeah, I cannot. She's another just like Jamie. I mean, she didn't actually get shot, but he intended to kill her. Did he let them see him? I think so. Okay. And it's Judge Lynn Windmill who presided over the trial. When sentencing him, she called him a, quote, cold, bloodless, pitiless slayer, end quote. Jeff and Joyce Underwood never had anything to say to James. They did not want to contact him, and they did not want to hear from him. And thankfully, he never contacted them either. And it's through their investigation leading up to that sentencing trial that detectives find so much more connected to him than the murder of Geralee. Jeff Underwood says, quote, they figured they could have probably pinned 30 murders on him across the country that have never been solved, end quote. Oh my goodness. Yeah. That's so many. Yeah. It's insane. And I mentioned that he confessed to another murder. And this is the murder of 33-year-old pregnant mother of four, Shirley Coleman. Shirley was murdered in 1976, and she was an employee of an electric plant in Greenwood, Louisiana. Remember, James was all over the state of Louisiana, causing destruction and fear. Shirley was doing her last-minute touches of Christmas shopping on Christmas Eve, when she is abducted from the parking lot of a store. For three years, Shirley's family and children lived wondering what could have happened to her. At that time, all they knew was that she was missing. Until January 7th, 1981, when her skeletal remains are found in Shrevenport, Louisiana. Now it's about 14 years later, when James is arrested for Geralee's murder, that he is confessing to Shirley's murder. What James claims is that he drove her to the electric plant where she worked. And he says this is when he rapes her in the backseat of her gold and beige Oldsmobile car before driving her to the woods and shooting her in the head. And after this confession, investigators are led to start looking into the disappearances of two girls who went missing only a couple months apart back in Shrevenport in 1979. That's the same year he is saying that he murdered Shirley. These two girls that had gone missing are Arilla Vall and Dottie Gray. Arilla Naomi Webb Vall went missing on March 15, 1979 from Bossier Parish, Louisiana. She was born on September 27, 1955, and she was 23 years old when she disappeared. She had just dropped her husband off at Shreven City, which is a shopping center on 70th Street. And as she drove away, her tire was going flat. So she drives her car about 100 yards, yards away over top of a bridge into Bossier Parish. Witnesses saw Arilla pull to the side of the road, and then a white male pulled behind her in a truck. She has never been seen since. And I wasn't really able to find information on Dottie's case, except for the fact that many people believe their disappearances are connected, as they went missing just those couple months apart in 1979. 
And I wouldn't be surprised if James is responsible. And that's the scary thing about a person like him. There are so many crimes he committed that we may not even know about. So many of these unsolved murders and disappearances can be tied back to people just like him. I know. I always wonder why these people don't get caught sooner. I know. The, I mean, he he was caught in two rapes and an attempted murder pretty much when he's stabbing the, these women. Yet we kept letting him out of prison and he kept. Yeah. Doing it. But who knows what he did before that? Before, <laughs> in between, after. Like, right. He has done so much more. If he admitted to 30 or they yeah. think they pinned 30 on him. He has done so much more than I think we could even like so much more than we are connecting here in this episode like there's no way he hasn't done more Mm -hmm. so you know we may never know for sure but we know he was in those areas during those times of you know the murder of Shirley the disappearance of Dottie and Arilla and although investigators somewhat find a connection between all of them, they never charge James with any crimes connected to these cases due to the lack of physical evidence. And honestly, initial suspicions were that these were just, you know, like boastful confessions, fake confessions. However, as more and more of his confessions were deemed to be true, they did feel the need to look into it. But that's where we will never know for sure. It ties in for me. It sounds like it could be him, but it could be someone else too. I don't right. know. For me, I believe him in Shirley's murder. And I would not be surprised in the disappearance of the other two girls. So it's a few weeks after he is sentenced to death in Jerry Lee's case that he files the paperwork to waive all his future appeals. This is because he wants to speed up the execution process, but then his lawyer Monty Whittier convinces him to reconsider. And it's on January 16th, 1994 that Monty Whittier appeals the sentence of death. So now starts post-conviction proceedings, and it's on February 7th, 1994, that Monty alleges the death sentence James received is actually unconstitutional. But then only a couple weeks later, they decide to say screw it on the appeals, and on February 25th, 1994, Monty files a motion to dismiss the notice of appeal. The court lets them know that doing this will suspend all appeal proceedings in the future, and it will go to the district court to now determine whether James was competent enough to actually dismiss these appeals. And now Monty and James change their minds again when Monty Whittier then withdraws the motion to dismiss the appeals. And after this, Monty removes himself from continuing on as James's lawyer. Now, James, he has new lawyers, John Adams and Rolf Kenny, and they file another appeal where they argue that James's sentence should be overturned due to the ineffective counsel by Monty Whittier. This argument comes from their claim that Monty Whittier, who was a Mormon, told James, that's what they say, he was a Mormon, told James that he could Why actually be, because <laughs> this ties into their appeal. And they say that 
Monty told James he could actually be forgiven by God with blood atonement. Now, for some background, when James came to Idaho, he did decide to start claiming religion and go to the Mormon church. So his lawyers are now saying this connection of the Mormon church between his previous lawyer and James made for ineffective counsel because James and Monty went to the same congregation, They is what they called it. And then I had to look up blood atonement because that's what they're saying. They're saying it was ineffective because Monty is telling James that he can be forgiven by blood atonement. And I was like, what's blood atonement? I've never heard of that. It sounds crazy and it is crazy. So blood atonement is where someone who commits an eternal sin can atone for that sin by being killed in a way that allows his blood to be shed upon the ground as a sacrificial offering. But the largest Mormon denomination, which is the LDS church that Geraldine's family is a part of, they say that this is fictional. They do not believe in this. I was like, that's good. <laughs> so his new lawyers are trying to say that Monty told him he could do this. And I don't even know if I believe that Monty really was saying this because if he was practicing in the LDS church and they clearly don't believe this. They call it like a th uh, theoretical principle and that it has never ever been implemented in the church. I don't see Monty actually telling him that and maybe his new lawyers are just using it as a reason to get mm -hmm. an appeal. But I thought that was like an interesting, that was an interesting way to try to get an appeal. A blood atonement. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. People don't believe in that. That's weird. So thankfully, Judge Lynn Windmill denies the request. And she says that m while Monty was flawed in some of his practices, nothing was severe enough to affect James's decisions. James is then sent to death row at the Idaho Maximum Security Institution in Kuna, Idaho in 2004, just a few hours west of Pocatello. Through all of that, investigators were able to search the Snake River and find Geraldine's remains. She was recovered with the exception of her right hand and her right calf. Because of the dismemberment and horrible way she was discarded into the river, her family was never able to see her body before they buried her. Jeff Underwood says, quote, The mortician stayed up all night trying to figure out what to do after they recovered as much as they could of her body. End quote. Geraldine's parents, they actually visited the site that she was murdered. They went there, they walked around the area, and Joyce said that it made her daughter's death seem real, helping her differentiate between the horrible thoughts of what could have happened and the reality of the crime. Quote, detail is so important to me. I had to know what had really happened. Nothing could have been worse than all the rumors and things we'd been imagining. We felt we had to go there, but we had to do it at a time when we were ready. After that, they had visited the cemetery before having a picnic at Pocatello's Ross Park with those that loved Geralee. There's a memorial stone there in Geralee's memory that reads, In memory of Geralee Underwood, I am a child of God dedicated May 31st, 2003. 
And there was a memorial service shortly after James Edward Wood's arrest. It was held on July 12, 1993 at 11 a.m. in the LDS First Ward Church, which was at 655 South Grant Road. And they had Bishop Doug England officiate her service. But because of the crime and the investigation, the graveside burial had to be postponed. So Geraldine's family, at this time, they feel good that James is behind bars, that they knew what happened to their daughter and that they could now sit with their grief in private and move on. Even that was short-lived because while James was on death row, the U.S. Supreme Court decides that capital defendants must be sentenced to die by a jury and not a judge. This decision was brought on after a case in Arizona raised the concern and it affected more than a dozen cases here in Idaho. James's case was one of them. He was not sentenced by a jury. He was sentenced by Judge Lynn Windmill. So now James has to go back to trial for resentencing. And Geraldine's family found this information too hard to accept. Quote, it was too much to take in, so I said a prayer to Heavenly Father and asked if he would please just take Wood's life so that it could be over and done with. End quote. And I'm not sure if it's coincidence, karma, or Jeff's please, but only weeks after finding out this information about a new trial, James Edward Wood does die of an apparent heart attack on January 30th, 2004 at 56 years old. Mm. <laughs> Crazy. So it wasn't from the death penalty, huh? Nope. He didn't get put to death. He just died while he was there. And Jeff Underwood was more than relieved to find out that his daughter's killer was gone from this earth. That's what he had just prayed for. And he was able to move forward with his own grief. And during this time, he decided he did want to know more, though, about the man who single-handedly derailed his family's entire life. So he asks the Bannock County Prosecutor's Office for the write-up on James, and they handed it over. Jeff found some sort of comfort and understanding of where James came from. Quote, it was really, really interesting, and it kind of shed some light that I maybe could have a little bit of compassion on him. To see a situation with his life as a child and teenager, I can maybe begin to see why he made the choices he did. End quote. So Jeff's a better person than me because I don't even forgive or Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't think he's even saying he forgives him, but you know, he had a little bit of compassion for him and it's like, yeah, I don't, I have zero for him. (laughs) That probably helped Jeff, you know, like move forward. Now in every case like this, there are multiple other victims of these perpetrators the family members of those they hurt, the people who love them, the community, and even the innocent family member of a perpetrator. These many people are deeply affected for generations by crimes like this. Joyce and Jeff, like I said earlier, felt that their faith helped them through the worst thing that could have ever happened to them, the worst thing they could ever imagine going through. And they attended counseling to help them with their grief. Jeff said, quote, There was one session that was especially therapeutic for me. We made a scarecrow replica of James Wood to get my anger out. Then I actually did what he did to Jera Lee. I went through the whole process and it was really helpful to get rid of the anger and not continue to harbor it. 
To lose a child to an illness or an accident, it's totally different than how we lost our child, end quote. And whew, all of that felt really heavy to me. Like they're very strong. Again, I can't imagine trying to find my way through a trial like this. Joyce Underwood always felt especially devastated by the loss of her oldest daughter. Quote, I never knew anything could hurt so much. Mother's Day and Geralee's birthday were the hardest days for her and, and how her daughter would always make her mom breakfast as her Mother's Day gift. Geralee Underwood would have turned 40 years old this year in 2022. Her parents have had to live without her for 29 years, but her memory lives on. She suffered at the hands of one of the most evil people on this earth, and she deserves to be remembered for the smart, sweet, and strong little girl that she was. Thanks for listening. This podcast is researched, written, hosted, and edited by me, Kayla Waters. It's co-hosted by Alicia Jenkins, and our palate cleanser is given to us by Charlie Waters. All our music was created by Jaden Schultz, who you can find on Instagram at In Pajamas Music. Don't forget to leave that five-star review. We'd appreciate it. Hi, I'm Charlie Waters, and I'm going to be giving you a palate cleanser. Did you know when you buy a potato, it's still alive? If you put a potato you buy in a warm place, sprouts will grow on it. And then if you bury it, the sprouts will turn into more potatoes. Bye. Have a great day. Say bye, Willow. Ah. Okay, guys, the organization I wanted to highlight today is one that is really cool. One of my clients told me about it today. It's called the Idaho Internet Crimes Against Children Coalition, so ICAC for short. They say that the use of internet of the internet by child predators has become a worldwide epidemic that poses a serious threat to all children, including those that live and go to school in every community in the state of Idaho. And this is real. You guys may have heard me mention it before, but there is a person we know, a person that has been in our house only a couple times, not actually good friends with this person, but ew, that got in trouble for this. And it is absolutely horrifying to think that these child predators are walking all among us and they have easy access on the internet. So ICAC is amazing. You can go to their website, you can report a crime, you can get involved and you can make a donation. So they are also a registered charity doing super, super, super good work. So please visit their organization at www.iicac org. That's www.icaccoalition.org.